G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Research Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we could be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great and helps us with the metrics to uh, to get this podcast out there to people who want to listen to it. But we'd greatly appreciate a moment of your time if you could leave us review. Obviously, with everything going on uh, in the world, we're, we're not recording in the studio, but I've still managed to get Brian involved. Um, and down the other end of the line, we have Professor Richard Hock, who is um, our only professor, I believe, in the RVC of Wildlife Health and Emerging Diseases. So an apt um, an apt title for, for these times at the moment. And as you can imagine, with um, uh, recording this remotely and not having that face-to-face contact, um, maybe there's uh, there's some sort of glitches in the system, um, and also hopefully uh, it's not sort of too distorted. But we'd be incredibly um, grateful if you could just be patient with us at this time, and we we try and sort of iron out any auditory oddities that we might have. So thank you very much for your patience. Um, we greatly enjoyed sort of speaking to Richard. Um, fantastic, humbling, inspiring. Enjoy. Um, these, we find ourselves in in odd times, and and you'd kindly agree to come into the um, into the studio. But obviously, with coronavirus going on and and everyone sort of working from home, um, that we're we're not doing that at the at the moment, which is which is tragedy because the studio is a, a fine place to be. Um, but we do have Brian uh, trying to record this as as well using different software. So thank very very much. Thank you for joining us and and thank you for your patience in uh, uh, being able to give us a bit of your time. Um, so um, if I could ask you, sort of, Richard, so how how your the start of your career? Did you did you always think you were going to um, be involved in, in research or because you you were a Cambridge graduate is that is that correct yes yes I, I you know Cambridge at that time uh, was a very very small um, group of students um, about 13 actually 13 of us can you imagine compared to the current uh, intake to the Royal Ventnor College um, and of those 13 I think you know quite a number of them went into research so the whole orientation of the course was sort of very much bent that way. I mean, we it was a professional degree and, and so on, but it was a long one. It was six years and you had a intercalated degree where you actually worked with medical sciences um, groups. So so I think it, it, it did provide, uh, you know, a, a platform for, uh, for research, for a more inquiring approach rather than you know, a sort of functional veterinarian in society. Um, and I guess that stayed with me. Um, I, I always had a bit of a strange uh, interest uh, to, to many of my colleagues, and that was in the wildlife field. At that time, there weren't many veterinarians actually working really, uh, certainly not full-time in, in the, in, you know, with wildlife. Um, so I was considered a bit of an oddball even then. But my, my background is Southern African. I, I was born in Zimbabwe and brought up there and lived in a you know wonderful country. Um, and I was very stimulated by nature. So nature was with me and, and it sort of was driving my decisions in terms of doing the degree. I did it really to give me the tools to work you know with um, animals. And, uh, and then it was a question really of, of building a skill set because the veterinary degree itself was not enough, really. Um, it, it didn't give you everything you needed 
Um, but the Cambridge degree provided at least a certain amount of extra background, you know. So uh, I was able to look at a bit of ecological sciences, um, you know, wildlife, um, behavioral sciences. Um, and, and, you know, that was helpful to me. Uh, so what, what did, I did you yeah, decide go, at that yeah. time? Sorry, Richard, did you did you um, did you decide that what you actually wanted to do was to go back to Zimbabwe and be a, be a large animal <laughs> vet, or did you always think you'd want to be involved in wildlife? Or yeah, no, it was. I, I think it was a case of you know I I had a, a desire really to contribute to you know wildlife health, I guess conservation. Uh, that was really the motivation. You know, how could I practically help to, you know, to move those sort of things forward? Um, so, yeah, so not I, I didn't actually have a particular goal to go back to to Africa at that stage because my family had uh, migrated. We'd, we'd um, become naturalized British citizens, actually, um, during the troubles in, in what was then Rhodesia. Um, so so I, I had, a yeah, I obviously had a great interest to, you know, to, to contribute, particularly to the African uh, wildlife. But, um, you know, I was practical, you know, I had to be practical. And, you know, after my uh, qualification at Cambridge, I in initially wanted to consolidate my degree. So I went into practice and uh, down in the New Forest, actually, uh, it was, a, you know, it's a beautiful part of the country. Um, and uh, that was, I found, excellent i mean i enjoyed it and and the practice i worked with were very supportive and you know i made it pretty clear to them that this wasn't my career but i really wanted to you know consolidate uh, but even then you know anything that came up that was of interest to me i remember i remember having a cat which had a most peculiar um, uh, clinical presentation and i ended up publishing it was the first case of key gaskell syndrome in cats you know you can't be more bizarre than that so i i just didn't i guess it always was with me not to leave things i mean if, if there was something strange you know look into it and try and present that so so i think that you know that that sort of research bias was there even when i was you know doing ordinary veterinary practice but after, you know, after three years, I, I had an opportunity to join the Zoological Society of London. These opportunities don't come up very often, particularly then. I mean, there were very, very few. You had a choice, really. You could either, to get further training, you would have to go either to Europe or United States or uh, Australia, New Zealand. You know, there were some opportunities in these countries, um, but, but very few. And in the UK, actually, you know, virtually zero. So it was just it was just these these major zoos, like uh, the Zoological Society of London, where they had a requirement for vets, um, and they employed me and they put me at Whipsnade, which is a, a sort of country, you know, their country um, collection of animals. It sort of suited me. I, I'm not really a very urban character, so London rather horrified me, and still does to this day, to be honest, um, in terms of keeping large animals. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, yeah, so so it, it was. I mean, it was a very Victorian institution, but it had, you know, the the learned society. And I think what was good about that, the Institute of Zoology was developing, um, and you know, I had this eight years there, uh, you know, again practicing my clinical skill, but now with species that I I was very interested in, and you know, where there was a, a conservation sort of motivation within the institution. So to try and you know. Uh, get these animals to to contribute in some way um th there was a lot of talk at that time about the frozen zoo about saving animals through zoos 
Um, and although I didn't really um, ascribe to that concept, um, I'm much more concerned about, you know, ensuring the habitats are in good shape and then dealing with health problems that are associated with a lot of the pressures in developing uh, environments. Um, but nevertheless, it was great, great platform, you know, to, to get to know people. And um, there was, uh, we talk about mentors. At the time, we had David Jones. He was a, he was a vet. Um, he was a London graduate, actually, uh, if I remember. He now, he's now in the United States. But he became director of zoos and was very encouraging to me, you know, to, to you know, within the Whipsnade context, you know, to really explore and, you know, and develop and, and, and apply research principles. So I, I, I did actually, particularly on the anesthetic side, I got into the whole sort of how do you, how do you actually handle these animals um, and then worked with some other, you know, uh, scientists who were specializing in different areas. Um, I remember one colleague, Peter Pierce, who he, he's sort of semi-retired now, but he ended up at Porton Down and he focused on particularly um, diving, actually, and, and, you know, the physiology of, of um, you know, oxygen, carbon dioxide um, in, in humans, primates. And, and we worked together looking at the effect of, of the drugs that were being developed at that time in capture and immobilization of a range of animals, particularly the, the ungulates, the hoofed animals. And so we did some really nice, you know, studies to show... Um, you know, some of the, the rather nasty physiological effects of some of these drugs, uh, which are still, you know, very, very pertinent to, to the situation today. Uh, I was actually just at a congress in South Africa where there was a, you know, lot of emphasis because they have huge numbers of antelope, which they manage in, in sort of semi-natural state, um, you know, in the country. Uh, millions, millions, actually. Um, it's, it's, it was quite a big industry. Now it's sort of lost quite a bit of money, but but they do a lot of, you know, capture and translocation of animals. So uh, it was so, sort of interesting going there after, you know, a, you know, a long career and to sort of see the, the where the science is actually in, in the anesthesiology. Anyway, so that that was uh, that, and I, I think the other aspect was trying to improve the welfare and husbandry uh, and nutrition of these animals. Because having come from Africa, seeing African species in these you know, in incredibly cold, wet conditions um, up on the Downs, um, the Chilterns, it was sort of horrifying, really. Um, and a lot of their health was affected by this. Um, and, you know, so as a veterinarian, you know, you sort of were, you felt really it was very important to do your best to um, to reduce the suffering these animals had and the diseases that were related to that. And, and you know, hats off to David. He, you know, he um, also believed that there was a need to, um, you know, to do this and improve their, their conditions. Um, and the way we did it actually was to start doing quite a bit of external consultancy work. Um, and we did that in the Middle East um, with Saudi Arabia in particular. And that brought in a lot of income. Uh, and that income um, was then turned into better housing uh, for a lot of these African species. Uh, so so th those were some of the elements around um, uh, uh, my work at the at, at Whipsnade. There was also the Institute of Zoology carrying out a number of things. Bill Holt, I remember, Professor Bill Holt, who's still who's still sort of connected to the society, and we we actually um, 
you know, co-manage um, an ethics committee for the Institute of Zoology. But, but Bill was a reproductive uh, um, biologist um, and, you know, a number of other people, Oliver Ryder, who, who now is at San Diego Zoo, um, who were working all on the sort of gamete side of things and, and how to do artificial insemination with odd species like rhinoceros and quite a lot of hormonal studies uh, by people. But, but the Institute of Zoology was very different. It was not really conservation oriented. It was, you know, much more sort of pure science oriented. Um, and although, you know, I can see its benefit, I, I, I don't think it's the, it's the area where conservation really needs science, um, really needs research. It's a sort of desperate last, last ditch uh, side. I think when animals are going extinct, you don't have a lot of choice. Uh, you know, you have to work on that. And, and a good example of that is northern white rhinoceros. They, you know, they are now effectively extinct um, in nature. And I've sort of observed from the time of working with rhinoceros at Whipsnade, helping uh, zoos in, in uh, Central Europe, which kept some of these northern white rhinoceros, working with people like Oliver on, on developing uh, in artificial insemination and, and breeding techniques with these animals because they were so rare. Also then working in Africa, and I'll come on to that in a minute, uh, with the same species, seeing them going extinct in the wild. Um, and then to this, you know, to, to this time where there were a few of these captive animals, all old animals left, and they're literally at a point now where they're trying to insert genes, um, you know, or genetic uh, information from, you know, the tissues of these animals into sort of surrogate embryos and so on to try and save the genetics of the species. So I, I've sort of through my career, I've, I've seen really the whole whole gamut of these things, uh, literally. Yeah. When, so, when oh, Richard, oh. were you based in in um, in Whipsnade? Did you do a lot of travelling at the time to to Africa? In yes. was there sort of a lot of little projects going on, and and you were involved in, in yeah, that so, as well. Yeah, exactly, or? exactly. So what happened is, you know, initially, you know, I was, you know, essentially just a veterinarian, and then, you know, as time passed, um, you know, with David's help, I get, got in, we started a thing called. Um, conservation programs basically i mean it was yeah so we sort of started within the society we had freedom to do that um and and we then you know be, began to sort of consolidate it by by doing these consultancies you know it, it, in various countries uh, particularly i say the middle east because you know they had resources and they were very keen on wildlife they had a lot of extinction problems in the middle east um so yeah so david i saw i you know so i was able then to sort of break away a bit um, and go and do these extended trips, um, you know, helping to set up these various activities and, and to get that income. And, and that sort of led, you see, to, you know, in, in um, 90, um, 1991, I'm just yeah, I'm getting back now, 89, 90, yeah, so, yeah, 90, so 91 going to, to Kenya. So what happened there is, so we, we'd sort of established this pattern. And of course, actually, the society was going through quite a lot of turmoil as well, because I think it was Margaret Thatcher's time or soon after, where the institution, which was a bit like Q, which received a lot of government support. So it was really a quasi-government type institution. Um, and, you know, everything was being privatized. And so the society was really thrown into a lot of turmoil, um, you know, having to sort of, you know, justify its existence through a commercial uh, aspect and that was sort of you know uncomfortable to be honest um, and I know David felt the same and that's I think partly what drove him to go to the United States but <clears throat> anyway um, 
before that happened, Richard Leakey, who's quite a sort of well-known character um, of the Leakey family and of, of Olduvai Gorge fame um, in, in East Africa, he, he was looking for somebody to come and help in Kenya. They, they were setting up a, um, a new department uh, of government, a sort of parastatal actually, in order to, to deal with a crisis in wildlife conservation in Kenya basically the original game department was had become very corrupt and uh, poaching was rife and people you know who are old enough will remember you know massive mortalities of elephant rhino you know many many species associated with transition from the colonial period to to modern uh, kenyan government um and uh, richard was asked by uh, arab moy the president at the time to 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 sort this out because wildlife was such an important part of the economy in Kenya with a very strong tourism uh, business um, going on. And, and I think, you know, a genuine desire by the ruling elite to, to, to put a stop to all this. And so Richard did that and he raised about $400 million through World Bank and various other um, uh, supporting agencies, including ODA. So, the, you know, the British government provided a little bit of support. And so they, they said, well, they'll give a bit of support to get a vet out there. And so David, you know, sort of cruised around looking for somebody. And um, um, I say Richard uh, cruised to, you know, and eventually came to to London. And so I met him and he said, you know, would I be interested? And I said, yeah, I, I you know, I, I would be very interested. I was definitely at the time now where I wanted to sort of develop you know, a, a, a greater engagement with, with free-ranging populations because I think I'd sort of had my fill of the captive situation. Um, and so he, he gave me the job. And so I went out under an ODA grant um, to support the development of a, you know, a veterinary research team, um, you know, at, at what was then called the Kenya Wildlife Service. Um, so, so that took me, and I went out with my was, family. Was that job blocked, Richard? Was that going off with your your family? And yeah, yeah, and, no, uh, I, well, and yeah. yeah, it was. And I, so, <clears throat> I mean, it was, I had no fears going back because, of course, I I'd been brought up in that environment, so I was I was very happy to do so. And I was I was keen. I had two young children and a baby, actually, three weeks when we we finally did shift. Um, so, you know, it, it for my wife it was pretty. Know, pretty uh, traumatic although she had traveled a bit um and you know the kids you know adapted pretty quickly um and you know i was very happy for them to enjoy an african environment you know as children because it's it's it is a wonderful continent so so we went out and and there were you know kenya wildlife service it's about four thousand employees um and there were six of us uh, with European heritage, uh, some you know, local um, Kenyan uh, European heritage, and a couple from abroad, one chap called Jamels, Dr. Jamels, who, who's another vet, he's a lovely chap, um, who had actually worked mostly on primates, and he was involved with the Institute of Primate Research in, in Nairobi, which was very much a disease-oriented um, program. Um, and myself, so I was there to set up this veterinary uh, research unit, um, and it was sort of you know, and I had really I had total freedom in a sense to decide how to how and how to do this. My main motivation was, in a sense, to to get a team of, of local vets um, and some of the ranger staff, and and you know, in a sense, work together to build you know a team who could then apply veterinary medicine and you know, veterinary research on wildlife populations, not in the sort of, 
I guess, you know, the, the mythology around, you know, I don't know if you remember a thing called Doctari, which was, <laughs> you probably don't, but it was, there was a television program called Doctari, and it was all about vets, you know, fixing giraffe legs and things which get broken and and it it you know it had a sort of image you know of what a vet does and actually it's persisted i i have to say in 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 the british uh, psychology about vets and wildlife they still think of them you know fixing animals um which is fine and i think there's a there's a need for that um and i'm not you know I, you know I, i'm not being overcritical but it, it's you know it, it wasn't certainly what i thought thought was important of course animals get injured and of course you know it's good that if you can help them you do um but in the context of populations if you look at say you know tens of thousands of animals it is inevitable some of them are going to get injured and it is not feasible to, to go out there as a veterinarian or anything to, to treat these animals because the economy simply w- wouldn't support it. It's very different to the domestic animal field. You know, the value is in the population, not in the individual. Um, so it was, it was like, you know, so the, the, the psychology of it was important to, for this new institution, which had a research department, um, and, uh, you know, to, to, to get across the message that really this, this was not about, uh, you know, individual care, of animals it was really about learning how to understand disease processes um so so that again that was sort of beginning to now develop in my mind you know research uh, you know design really and how do you get a team of people to achieve you know conflicting demands you know in a management authority the authority was responsible for all wildlife in the in the country um and so um it, it meant that as a, you know, as a team, some of the operational staff would be looking for support, say, for metapopulation management. So they would be saying, well, look, we have a population, but let's take rhinoceros. They're, they're all over the place. They've been poached, you know, uh, into small, you know, uh, surviving groups around the country. It's not viable. So you needed to have a team that would help to pull these rhino together, put them in secure locations where they could breed and, um, um, and then b- begin to sort of recover. So that was an example of a, of a focus. Uh, similarly, for things like can, can I ask Richard that you, you had free um, so, sorry to interrupt you, you had like say free access to create a research uh, um, uh, um, structure that you that you liked, but you, you spoke about the public perception about individual animals. Did you was there a bit of conflict, or did you have a bit of difficulty in saying, look, I want to look at large numbers rather than individuals and this is how we're going about it was there a bit of uh, i suppose like politics involved in that or, or did you actually find that quite a an easy thing to 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 say this is what we're doing yeah it's really interesting <coughs> that you ask a question like that because in fact for the for the africans for the kenyans is not a problem for some of the old colonial um europeans in Kenya, it was a problem. <laughs> so, because, the, yeah. for example, they had, um, it, you know, there was sort of orphanages and things. I mean, places, you know, so going back to sort of Elsa, you know, and uh, George Adamson, uh, you know, and those stories, which are very sort of, you know, they're very strong in the colonial history of Kenya. Um, and, and it was all about, yeah, saving lions, you know, and, and uh, doing it in a very, very personal way. And, it, and it's very attractive. And I think people, they, you know, particularly from, from European backgrounds, they, they, you know, they are very animal, you know, very personable with animals. Whereas, whereas, you know, Africans, you know, brought up 
in a more traditional view on on wildlife being a resource and something that you eat, you know, didn't really have that same attitude. And of course, with the transition, you know, from the, the colonial to the post-colonial period, you know, a lot of wildlife obviously were, was consumed. And so, you know, the, the problems that they had were partly as a result of Africans, in a sense, reowning their resource and, and use it in the way that they thought was most appropriate. And so the old, you know, the old sort of colonial attitude was, you know, these people are poachers, they're destroying their resource, which to some extent was correct. And it did need to be addressed, but it was sort of interesting difference in, in how people perceive wildlife and natural resources. So yes, I did have a bit of a problem. And that's partly why Richard brought me in, I think, because there were one or two vets in Kenya, Europeans, who, who would have loved to do that job. Um, and bringing somebody in from outside did cause quite a lot of local um, politics in that community. Um, so I, I had to sort of, you know, somehow deal with that. The Africans were, were really great, actually. They were, you know, they told me not to worry about it and we just get on with it. Um, but I did, you know, have that to sort of manage um, over the years. And um, But fortunately, because I had great backing from the director, I had, you know, um, you know all the, all the, research people that were brought in and so on they were very much more pragmatic and and sensible about it um and so i i you know avoided in a sense getting dragged into dealing with things like the orphanages and and you know be, you know our, our staff being sort of sucked into that very intensive type management um and the local vets tended to continue to do that so we didn't you know in a sense create a competition for some of those professionals who you know who in a sense benefited from that relationship uh, with those old you know those old ideas about keeping animals um and and, and rescuing them you know rescue i mean terror you know to me it's you see uh, people f you don't really understand in in a context like this that that you, you get an injured animal or a you know a, a uh, conflict animal, say a leopard or something that causes, you know, it's been killing people or killing goats and sheep, that somehow you rescue this animal, you put it into a facility, and then at some point you release it back into the wild. It's sort of rehabilitation. But in my experience in, in relatively natural um, environments, it's a hiding to nothing. You don't achieve very much. In fact, you often cause more harm than good. But but emotionally, of course, people this is what they really want. They want to you know they want to do this sort of rescue business. Um, so I, I managed to I managed to avoid actually uh, you know that happening. And then there was pressure even within the uh, the headquarters of the you know it was a big investment. Um, they wanted to you know, had this small orphanage and then there was a separate orphanage. Um, nearby and they wanted to create a zoo basically and Richard and, and I spoke to Richard about it, I said you know having come from the Zoological Society of London you'd think that you know that I would be pro that but I said no I think actually for Africa it's not a good idea you know when you see how animals are, are treated sometimes they had agricultural shows and they would sometimes take animals from the old the old institution, old game department. You used to take lions that were conflict lions, put them in a cage, take them to the agricultural show. And these animals would go out in reasonable condition, come back, um, you know, nearly dead, you know, from the from being poked and from, you know, in small cages. And it, it's just a different, you know, people have a different, you know, perception. Um, and so I, I felt zoos generally in Africa are not a good idea. Um, and, in, and if you look historically, I remember in the Middle East when we look when we did work there, again, the biggest problem was stopping people stoning animals. 
um, you know, once, you know, zoos were set up. And it took quite a lot of education and, and behavioral change, you know, in the population to, to get them to stop doing that. So, I, again, I, you know, I think we all have our own perceptions of welfare and animals and what animals represent. And around the world, it's very, very different. It's not that Africans are cruel necessarily. It's just that um, they have a much more pragmatic view of these things. So, so I managed to, uh, you know, help uh, to resist any sort of major development of pu public facilities for um, animals, but but recognizing that it was important for um, the public to be engaging, and and health and veterinary, you know, it's a sort of interface in a way between different sectors of society. So. You know, you bridge with the, you know, with the commercial, you know, uh, livestock uh, community. You you interface with, with, um, you know, schools and educational. I mean, it's it, because you, you know, it, it's something which society understands to some extent. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe a, a, you know, a research scientist who specialises on some ecological question, you know, it doesn't have that same relationship. So we, I did try and use that as an opportunity. So the vets that we employed, who are all locals. And I thought this was very important, you know, local, you know, trained vets. I mean, they were not trained in, in New York or London or any, they, they were locally trained vets. And, you know, we set up this team and a good team of support staff. And they were, they were wonderful people. They were just so good to work with. And uh, again, you know, I went with each of them in the selection process. I went through all this, this whole process about what do you want to do? Why are you doing it? What motivates you? And trying to get a team of people who understood this need for a broader uh, research focus um, so that one would, you know, set targets, um, but also provide, you know, some technical support um, to the operational departments uh, and deal with the odd, you know, injured animal and so on. Because in, in a tourism context, you know, you can't, ignore the fact that if you had an injured animal in front of tourists, that they would probably need to have something done. So, so we sort of developed the unit. I had, as I said, freedom. We had money. It took, you know, uh, three or four years to set up. Uh, we built a whole facility. Um, and, and sort of what's interesting is to go from myself as an individual, six uh, local vets, and then maybe about 20 uh, uh, local staff. So that's how we started. And now, you know, nearly 20 years later, um, they've got 72 people and it's a very well-established department and it's, you know, it has had very little external, you know, input since then. So, so it was just myself in a sense injected in there from, from, you know, a different system. Um, and it sort of uh, evolved after that. Um, and that, that brings me on really to, to, I guess, um, how you know particular research activities began to develop so <clears throat> we had the sort of principle of we now had tools we could we could monitor populations we could catch animals we could take biological samples and we focused very much on developing those skills and then beginning to look at diseases that were occurring in various populations of animals and and you know i can give you a whole range of examples from things like sarcoptic mange in cheetah to uh, mass die-offs in flamingos um, and and then to a particular disease which became sort of a major part of my you know strengthening research career and that was a rinderpest virus so <clears throat> rinderpest virus um, its closest relative um, is measles actually um, and it's probable that measles evolved from rinderpest um, 
back when domestication in Asia of cattle brought cattle in close proximity to, to humans. And so measles became a major disease of humans the, if it was a pathogen jump, effectively, whilst rinderpest was a major disease in um, cattle, domestic cattle in particular. Uh, and so, you know, that's in a sense where vet veterinarians first, that's where they came from, really, was from the, the kings in France and in Britain losing a lot of cattle to this disease and saying, we need a discipline of people to deal with this. And so the veterinary profession really evolved from that rinderpest virus uh, problem in cattle, uh, which is sort of an interesting aside. But it became a global problem. It was a pandemic problem um, um, after it evolved, probably in the 15th century, something like the 16th century. Um, and um, Africa was a particularly bad spot for it because <clears throat> when the, the colonization was taking place in the, the late... 1800s, a lot of cattle were being moved. So under the British Empire, from India and also Italians were bringing in cattle. So and and Egypt. So you had you had a lot more domestic animals being brought into the continent. There, there was an indigenous population of cattle actually, but um, these were rather scattered and very much in pastoral settings, not in sort of more intensively managed um, populations. It brought the virus with it so in, the, in the 1890s. And it just ripped through the continent over the next uh, decade. The, the tragedy was that it, it affected a lot of wild uh, ruminants. So the sort of bovine antelopes, things like buffalo, um, uh, and, and you know what we call the bovine antelopes. So the, the kudu and the eland and a range of other species. Uh, wildebeest in Serengeti is something that people are very familiar with. It literally wiped these animals out, uh, huge, huge die-offs, 90%. And, and it's talk, you know, talk about the great, uh, you know, uh, rinderpest um, epidemic in Africa that went right down to South Africa and affected the economy of these countries. And in South Africa, it really put back colonization, you know, many, many years because they lost all their um, draft animals, their ox, um, you know, their, their, their ox wagon uh, herds and so on. Um, and, it, and it was, you know, it became a, you know, a disaster really for the colonial governments. Anyway, it persisted. So Rinderpest persisted in Africa. Um, it was eliminated from South Africa, but um, in, in East Africa and West Africa, it persisted. And so the veterinary community of which many Royal Vet College people, Walter Plowright, for example, who, who's um, you know, one of our famous alumni, he developed a vaccine. He worked at the East African Veterinary Research Organization in Nairobi during the colonial times. And, uh, <clears throat> and he developed a very good uh, goat cell-based vaccine. Um, and that was in the sort of late 50s. And, and this was really the, the foundations for now controlling this disease, which was still causing significant impact and, and hardship for uh, cattle, cattle keepers uh, throughout Africa. Um, so the disease start, started to be, to be controlled, but a decision was taken um, to try and eradicate it, try and get rid of it completely, because it was, you know, was really causing a lot of problems. Um, and so there was so serious was a decision yeah. that you were involved with, or, or was it, or was it something that was directed? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it started before actually. So uh, the first project was actually American-funded um, USAID project, uh, and that sort of fizzled out eventually. They they thought they'd succeeded. They even issued a stamp. You know, they they did quite well. Um, 
you know, across Africa, they were celebrating, and then the disease re-emerged. Um, and so that was in the 70s. And then the thing called uh, PARC, the Pan-Africa Interpest Campaign, this was now funded by the Europeans. The Americans gave up. And then the Europeans came in and said, no, no, we'll give it another go. And so they started PARC. So I was involved with PARC, so the Pan-African Interpest Campaign. The reason why I got involved was because wildlife was affected. And we had... Um, you know, soon after I arrived, actually, um, uh, in 93, we had a big epidemic uh, in wildlife. Now, it's a very political disease. And this is something, you know, like foot and mouth in this country. You know, if you if you get foot and mouth, it causes a lot of trouble. Um, so for Africa, Rinderpest was highly political. And Kenya, the government, um, you know, post-colonial government was very, you know, very strict and very uh, dominant in the way it managed problems. So uh, Rinderpest was, you know, if you if anybody reported something like Rinderpest, you know, they had to be very, very careful. It's a bit like old um, Lou, this uh, uh, chap in China, you know, who started declaring COVID-19 was happening. You know, he was told to, to, you know, to recant, otherwise he'd lose his job. Um, and that was very, very similar, actually. You know, when, when we first came across the Rinderpest, um, talking to any government official, they were just frightened. They didn't want to, you know, to, to raise their heads above the parapet because they'd get shot off. Um, so what was interesting is that this new body of, of wildlife uh, veterinarians sort of specializing in doing research work um, was outside of the department. Um, uh, the veterinary department outside the Ministry of Agriculture. It was under the Ministry of Environment. So we were independent. So we could carry out work on something without having that um, constraint. Um, and so we did, you know, did this work. Rinderpest was still circulating. In fact, it had never stopped circulating, but it had become a politically unacceptable disease. So, you know, any mention was suppressed. And from from the early 1960s to literally 1993, any outbreaks were not reported officially to the international community because it was a reportable disease. Um, and because it wasn't causing huge economic impacts, because it was no it was endemic actually, it was no longer epidemic. It was it was quite mild actually in cattle, but it was causing disease in wildlife. And another colleague of mine, another mentor, if you like. Paul Rossiter, who's another RVC graduate who did his PhD under Walter Plowright, he um, he was working uh, still at Maguga, which is the where the British government was still supporting virus research um, at their you know at their field station. Um, so I you know I got to know Paul, and um, uh, he was very helpful um, only because he you know he he believed it was circulating, but he was never able to to really express it because he was, um, you know, it was sort of controlled in a way uh, where he worked that he could, you know, actually, Paul, he did on a number of occasions try and make it clear that something was going on. But because I was independent, you know, we were able to now to, to, to carry out these field studies. So, you know, over a period of about a, a year, um, we were picking up these disease mortalities actually in, in uh, lesser kudu, uh, which is a sort of very cryptic species. Um, and, you know, I looked at it and I actually went to Paul Rossiter, um, you know, my colleague, the virologist, and I, I explained to my, you know, I said, this, this disease looks to me like it could be, you know, a, a, a rinderpest-like disease. And he actually, you know, even though he was, you know, 
he sort of had, had you know had sort of almost been suppressed by the propaganda and and he didn't you know he laughed about it he said no he says no he doesn't think it is you know anyway it was one of those situations that was you know was I remember over a, we were having a, a barbecue and you know, I kept saying to him, look, I'm sure this is. And he said, no, but, but you know, maybe you should send some samples in. So in the end, I, I did actually you know, send some samples into the veterinary department from these animals that were dying. And uh, um, they conveniently lost them. <laughs> so I, it was very frustrating. So, um, so actually what I did is, you know, probably, I mean, it's, it's common knowledge now, but I, I got hold of some fixed material, fixed tissues, and I managed to get some of these to a colleague in the, in the United States to look at it under electron micrograph. So they looked at it and they came back and said, this is definitely a morbillia virus. So I then took that information and they had this Pan-African Rinderpest uh, campaign going on. So they were vaccinating against the disease. But this was now diplomatically independent. It was under the African Union. And I, I, you know, I spoke to them and I said, look, you know, you're, you're trying to get rid of this disease. But, you know, it looks like it's in the country, but it's not being reported. So cut a long story short, I, I you know, through, through influence with this independent body, we were able then to, to force the government to uh, accept a diagnosis. So they, they did in the end accept to collect material. It was sent to the Purbright Institute in, in UK um, and the disease was diagnosed and you know uh, it was reported to the OIE. Um, and, and, the, and it continued for the next 10 years. But it, what it did, it sort of galvanized the eradication community. I wasn't very popular, as you can imagine, but I, you know, I, I survived that because I was sort of protected both by a different ministry, by Richard Leakey and so on, um, and this team of Africans who I worked with. And so it wasn't just me. Um, and uh, it sort of, you know, I was I was acceptable to the establishment in the end. And we and we then worked closely from the Wildlife Service with the um, African Union body, the Inter-African Bureau for Animal Resources, with the veterinary department, and actually we, we began working regionally also with Tanzania, with Uganda, and so this group of vets now became much more engaged with um, development of epidemiosurveillance surveillance uh, uh, methodologies, so that we could use wildlife disease as an indicator, actually, of the livestock disease, which was very difficult to track because of vaccination. It was difficult to use serology, blood work, to determine if the infection was still around. So wildlife became a very useful tool, actually, in the whole process. And in fa fact, it gradually got brought into the whole eradication strategy with the uh, organization of um, the World Health Organization for Animals, OIE, and the FAO, who were, had a program called the Global Rinderpest Eradication Program. Working together with them, we built wildlife science into the eradication process. And so that was sort of my contribution in a way, in a way to, to eradication, um, you know, was to, to, to bring this perspective um, of a multi-host infection like rinderpest um, into veterinary thinking uh, and so that you know people didn't just think about the domestic animals you know which is still sort of dominant in in the veterinary profession to this day although it's it, it's very very much better so we did that and and we got quite a bit of cash brought into the institution to help and to to give backing to the veterinary departments and to the 
to the Global Eradication Program. And so I, I sort of worked and that became a sort of priority activity for, for our section in the Wildlife Service. Um, and, you know, we, we took it right through to eradication. So, in fact, I diagnosed the very last case in 2001, right about Christmas, um, because they applied massive vaccination activities after the initial diagnosis in the 90s. Um, European Union spent a lot of money. Um, focused, you know, literally 70 million euros were spent pretty much on this focus of infection. And we, we were able to sort of using the wildlife indicators, we were able to map. And so we worked right throughout the region, right into West Africa, actually, up to Ethiopia, um, down to the Congo and places. And we, we mapped out through using antibodies in wildlife to show you where virus was still circulating. So we actually mapped out the remnant populations of virus. And then they applied vaccination heavily. And the very last case was in what we call the Somali ecosystem. It was in eastern Kenya in a buffalo herd. And um, again, it, it was so interesting because, because of so much money spent on vaccination, the belief was that there simply couldn't be any more virus left. And in 2001, I, I was you know, actually with a, with a, a group of students, funnily enough, um, where we were just uh, doing routine surveillance on these buffalo. We'd sort of established these routine programs. And um, I, I, I was observing some buffalo and I said, that, that young buffalo just didn't look right to me. You know, so you get a sense of what is healthy and what isn't. And um, it wasn't that sick, but it just, I knew something wasn't quite right. And I had then, one of the first lateral flow devices. These are, you know, new new little tools that were being developed. You know, we're talking now about COVID-19. One of the key things are these, these practical lateral flow devices that you can use using monoclonal antibodies. Um, and you put, you know, a drop of serum, um, you know, uh, or, or fluid or, or something on, 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 you know, on the um, chromatographic paper on this little plastic kit that you have in the field. And, um, the idea is that the monoclonals are there to ca capture any antigen and there's a marking color so that so that if the antigen's there, you know, you'll get a line and then you have a control line, which, you know, is higher up on the chromatographic paper. Um, you know, sort of extension of Western blot blotting techniques and so on. But, it, you know, it's a really neat way of doing things. And that's what they're trying to do at the moment with COVID-19 so that we can actually do serological diagnosis on, you know, on 60 million people in Britain. So it, it's sort of interesting to see how these things now, you know, are being applied in human herds that we were sort of trying to apply at that stage in, in animal herds. And by using that little kit, you know, I knocked down this buffalo that I thought was not that well. And I remember the student with me and, you know, I, I you know, did the did the test and it was positive. Now now it was really worrying because <clears throat> I had to now go back to Nairobi after this, um, and I, I then I looked at the herd and I thought yes there is something going on here, um, and I went to see my director. Um, uh, I, I probably just skipped a point you know because I I finished at the Wildlife Service when Rinderpest was still ongoing, um, and actually the British government funding had dried up. But I still kept a relationship with the Zoological Society of London. Um, but I got a job with the African Union, so they, you know, they uh, took me under their wing. I joined an epidemiology unit um, under the Pan-African Rinderpest Campaign, and I maintained very close connections with the, the Wildlife Service people, and still worked with them very frequently because we had this, you know, large program. Um, so I had to go to my director, who was then now. Uh, the director of the Inter-African Bureau for Animal Resources, so a regional chap. He worked, you know, um, you know, with many, many countries. Very powerful politician, 
a very nice chap called Walter Masiga. I call him another mentor, really. Um, and um, I had to sit with Walter. And there was another colleague of mine called Gavin Thompson, who was part of the unit at the time. He used to be director of the Ondersport Veterinary Institute, a very famous um, you know, veterinary uh, laboratory in South Africa. Um, and he was also head of the FMD commission at, at uh, OIE for, for a time. So, you know, real expert in the virus fields. Anyway, so Gavin, so I had to sit with Gavin and, and Walter Masiga and tell them after, you know, a decade of massive investment and vaccination in the region uh, that, that I thought we still had the virus. Um, and it was, you know, they were just getting to the point where they were, you know, they were about to say, well, globally, the virus is gone, you know. So it was a very sort of critical point. Um, and all their reputations and, you know, it, you know, it was, it was pretty tense. And Gavin Thompson. That came down. <laughs> so I, I'm sitting there saying to them, well, I think we got it. And they're looking at me and they think, you're just a troublemaker, you know. Um, and uh, and I, said, I said, I was convinced. And I showed them the, the lateral flow device. And you know, Gavin Thompson said to me, he said, are you absolutely sure? Um, I, you know, just looking, he says, because if you're wrong, you're the first person on a plane out here. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're at the end of your career, my friend. And it was like, it was that threatening. Um, and the director as well said to me, look, you know, if, if we back you on this and you're wrong, we're all out of a job. And it was, you know, so it was really tense. But I, I sort of had confidence in the test. You know, I, I had worked with the people a little bit in the development of the test. And I said, no, no, I think this is good. And I believe that the the, the, the animals were showing mild infection. Um, and and I, I, you know, I stuck my neck out and I said, and they backed me. Now, the government went completely bananas. Um and of course, it was the same person who had done it 10 years before. Uh, so they weren't comfortable with that. But because of the power of the African Union, they were forced. So I was literally taken up there by the department. I wasn't allowed to do anything. Um, but some of my uh, African colleagues from K KWS came up um, and they did the immobilization. But I had to be there. I had to be present. And I had to show them which animals I thought were infected. And they did, they did actually, they, they culled some of the animals because they wanted to make sure. And they took a lot of material that was sent to Perbright. It was confirmed positive. And that was the last, that really was the last virus globally. I mean, that was the interesting thing. So the fact that we found it at that point in time was really, really important because they were just beginning to back off from vaccination. So they were saying, okay, job's done. But if we hadn't found that virus then and actually dealt with what was a a sort of persistent uh, focus of virus in, in actually mostly in Somalia, but also a little bit in Kenya. So the next two or three years, again, intense mass vaccination of that area. And then 2010, they declared globally free and that virus was eradicated. But serendipity, you know, um, how, was, was how Richard did, um, sorry, how, how how does that actually work when they declare a virus sort of free? Is that is that because they've then sort of tested over yeah. a number of years or, or what gives that sort of seal, as you said, because you found that that um, that population. So what, yeah. What, yeah. So the, what measures do they have? Yeah, so they had a thing. So the global, you know, Rindipus eradication program, which is now being followed by the global PPR eradication program. So remember that only... Two viruses have been eradicated, smallpox and rinderpest. So, so the OIE set the standard. And the standard, you had to prove um, freedom from um, disease. Okay, So initially, no clinical disease uh, reported from a country. And then you had to uh, go into a next stage of the pathway, as they called it, 
and that was freedom from infection. So you could have mild disease, mild infection, um, and, and it wouldn't be reported clinically, but you had to prove that there was no antibody being produced and therefore no evidence that the virus was circulating. And that was globally. So every country had to fill a, a dossier out. And that was based on a, you know, a lot of work and investment by the government to, to prove that they had actually eradicated the disease. And that was over, you know, remember, this, is, this took nearly 100 years to eradicate this disease. Um, and so in that last phase of 40 years, it was this process of documentation and, and confirmation of elimination. Um, so, 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 and, and to this day, we have not had any further evidence for the virus. So I do truly believe that that virus has been uh, eradicated globally. So it was, that was a big deal. And, and uh, it's quite an achievement that you were, as you said, serendipity, that you were the last person to actually diagnose it as, as well. So I suppose that means that you're, you're you know, probably um, no one else will be able to have your, your experience in 20, 30 years time if, if, if something does does reappear, um, hopefully. They won't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an yeah, incredible story. But, uh, you know, so that was a great privilege in a way. Mm. Great privilege. And, anyway, and, and, you know, the fact is that, just the way we had set up our, you know, these these wildlife uh, groups, and and it's now sort of expanded a lot more. I think, you know, in many regions, um, I, I got involved with the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, as well during my career, and became co-chair with a guy from New York called Billy Koresh, um, in what's known as the Wildlife Health Specialist Group. But it's been sort of very enriching over these years to see a growth in, you know, the profession, but also in research in wildlife disease so you have a, a big association for wildlife disease now globally um, and it's you know it's becoming its own strong entity which is becoming very very important when we when we think about a lot of these modern emergent uh, problems you know so from ebola virus to you know to covid, to COVID 19 they have that you know veterinary and wildlife elements um, to their stories um, so it is really important now that we have a community of people uh, able to you know, undertake the necessary research. It's not something that vets necessarily can do on their own. We, you know, I think when you work with wildlife populations, you must have ecologists, you need public health scientists and so on when you're dealing with zoonotics. So it, you know, it, sort of, it, it sort of naturally, I think, in my career has, has led to the, you know, to, 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 to the fit with a One Health um, approach, you know, where you you look at, you know, look at these disease problems in the context of of the environment, of the of the animals that also share these these pathogens, and then people as well, because we're part of that sort of biological community. Uh, and so, I'm a great advocate for that. Now, I think you know it's the only way we can deal with these modern problems, because in the past, human population was small enough that I think our impact on pathogen dynamics was quite limited. I mean, we, we would suffer some pathogens, but but our actual influence on pathogen emergence was, was very limited. Now, I think pretty much all pathogens are a direct product of our behavior. And in a sense, rinderpest probably was one of the first because it was the domestication and the expansion of populations of domestic animals that drove that virus uh, to become such a you know pandemic issue. Um, so you know it's a lot about human behaviour um, and human development and agriculture and livestock agriculture and also how we interface with with the wild um, uh, species. And we've reached this point now, I think, where we still have huge numbers of 
microbial organisms, but the um, the populations that are available for them to infect are now predominantly human and domestic. Um, so the spillovers that are occurring, I think, and then the amplification of these um, organisms in 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 animals is is a real threat. I think it's a you know I would, I would even use the term an existential threat actually for humans, because um, you know it is such a powerful force. I think force of infection that's coming through this invasion of natural space and unusual organisms are being you know uh, given the opportunity to to infect us so i guess that you know when i think about my progression so uh, you know ha having ended in kenya in 2006 i i finished my work then i i knew it was sort of time to move on i i felt i had a good you know really good community of africans that i had been involved with i'd had wonderful mentorship from many of the people i've mentioned to you and um, I, I thought it was time to, you know, to, to sort of move on, uh, and I brought my family back to back to the UK. Um, initially, uh, to, back to the Zoological Society, actually, because they then had a quite a strong conservation program um, uh, developing, which had sort of expanded up from the initial uh, work we had done, David Jones and I had done back in in the 80s, um, and the Institute of Zoology now had sort of shifted its its focus more towards conservation um, and you know doing conservation biology and and uh, and actually more and more health related stuff so um, people like Andrew Cunningham um, you know got a reputation looking at these interesting um, uh, funguses in, in amphibians you know that seem to be on a sort of you know global scale and and very very important for the survival of amphibians and so you know some really nice disease work actually developing uh, Sarah Cleveland who's you know it's very you know famous current contemporary uh, of mine uh, veterinarian you know from Glasgow who you know, has done some wonderful work on rabies and many other things so so this this um, community now in, in in Britain was was really strengthened, um, and so I was quite happy to, to to get back into that. It was a little bit away from the disease world for a bit, but um, but I still you know uh, maintain you know a lot of connections and, and activities um, with with you know ICN you know OIEFAO and so on, um, and and I did a few projects, Darwin Initiative projects and so on, and looked at you know health in places like Nepal. Um, you know, improving uh, health of rhinos and so on in Nepal, and we had some some really nice projects. So I had three or four years, but I was sort of you know not that comfortable um, back in an environment really where there was quite a strong commercial interest. You know, the zoos, um, you know, still uncomfortable about captive animals to be honest. Um, and so an opportunity to to join the Royal Vet College uh, came up, and and they were looking for somebody to I think to to basically. Um, take forward the One Health agenda a bit um, to bring, uh, because wildlife was becoming much more uh, popular. I think students were, were saying they, they wanted more uh, inputs on wildlife. Um, and so they decided um, to, to set up a post and, you know, I was I was able to apply for that. And it, I just felt, you know, the time had come. I'd, I'd had a very practical career, still research oriented. Um, you know, to, 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 to answer questions and to, you know, to provide, you know, uh, uh, useful uh, methods for, you know, for epidemiological uh, science um, and, um, you know, uh, disease ecology. <clears throat> but, but I, you know, this was an opportunity to give something back, I guess, um, in a way to, you know, to, to the next generation. So, so that motivated me 
and I, I was given this post and uh, it was uh, wildlife health and emerging diseases. So it really fitted very well with what I'd done in my career. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a vacuum you're moving into. It, it wasn't a huge amount of capacity. I mean, there was very little capacity within the college. There were individuals who had an interest um, and uh, um, were very supportive to me. Um, I mean, Steve May, who I had actually qualified with at Cambridge, um, he was very kind, very supportive. He, he felt it was an important area to, to develop, and I'm very grateful to him for his, you know, his insight and wisdom. You know, he's, he's a pretty smart fellow and, um, you know, has done a wonderful job for the Royal Vet College um, o over the years. And uh, um, uh, Declan McKeever, who was my head of department, um, he had worked in Kenya, so he, he was aware of the sort of studies that I'd, I'd been involved in. Um, and Declan was, you know, again, very supportive um, to help me move forward. So I tried to, um, within the college now, you know, find my feet in a sense in relation to both the academic side, but also the research side. And, um, you know, I, I had I had sort of, in, in the period in Kenya, up until the time I... I, I came back to the UK. I'd, I'd formally taken my um, the sort of research I'd done, and I'd put it through the Cambridge uh, DVM uh, process, or they called it a, a VMD actually. And this was a PhD equivalent at, at Cambridge. So I'd, I'd managed to get that done. So I had the sort of academic uh, uh, qualification required for the professorship. Um, and uh, it, you know the field was really open for me then to to explore. So on the academic side, of course, I could slot into a master's program in in uh, wildlife health and wildlife biology, uh, which I'd sort of been partly involved back in the 80s in starting. Actually, funnily enough, there was a small course that we'd started that then evolved into a master's, full master's, and so I'd sort of come full circle really back to to that. So so that was good. I could slot into that very easily with all my you know, wildlife experience, and I've sort of continued to contribute to that program. Um, and uh, started the One Health uh, course, um, so that masters, and that was quite a you know quite a challenge to set up a masters program. It's not something to take on lightly, um, but there was you know plenty of momentum in the institution, uh, I think, to support it, and and uh, it has proven to be quite a successful masters. I'm you know, happy to say. So I took it through its first five years as a director, helped to set it up, and and um, you know I, I'm pretty pretty happy uh, you know and of course some very very good people have helped you know, to make that a success both from the london school of hygiene who's a partner on it uh, and from the royal vet college on the research Did side you still involve yourself in now, field work richard yeah. no no i was just asking because obviously that's a big sort of transition you've been very engaged and actually kind of like getting the job done haven't you 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 like the, what you practically yeah. need to do things on the floor and then sort of moving to academia being more um, the theory behind it. Did, was that quite difficult to, although it's very generous to, to give something back, do you, do you find that your part of you wants to um, be back in Kenya or East Africa and uh, and actually get back involved? Or, or are you happy to send out people now or, or be involved in, in that way, either doing master's projects or yeah. PhDs? and. Um, and maybe maybe move on to that. Do you think it's funding now? Is do you think that's a, yeah? An, no, look, an I issue think, yeah. in, um, <laughs> for people investigating 
certain conditions in wildlife. I, I think I think the great beauty of a career where you've you've been engaged in the field is that you it's very real to you. So you really know what the problems are, and you sort of you know where probably one needs to focus, um, you know, more academic uh, work and research. So so I was very motivated by this the concept of One Health and educationally trying to get that message across to to people who can be quite narrow. I think vets can be quite narrow sometimes. I mean, I, they, they think of themselves as broad because they deal with multiple species. But even so, there's sort of narrowness if you think about the complexity of biology and, and, and actually what you're looking at in terms of domestic animals. You know, they're pretty bizarre things, you know, that have been sort of manipulated genetically over centuries and you know thousands of years and so they really are strange and they don't really you know follow any rules and 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 many of their problems are, are really a product of that sort of engineering over over all, all that time um so so the the natural world gives you you know really i mean it broadens your perspectives on health disease and immunity and, and all these subjects which you know vets specialize in but i don't think they really appreciate actually what's happened to these animals to make them so susceptible and so you know vulnerable to many many problems um so yeah so to, to me it was it was a sense of you know of having that opportunity to pass on knowledge um you know from a very pra- you know, practical you know but but research oriented background um and then to sort of formalize that research a little bit as well you know in you know in a more academic uh, uh sense um so I, so I, I had that academic side, and I was happy to follow that. But I wanted to do some, you know, targeted research activities. Um, and so, you know, to cut a long story short, it, you know, to raise money is not easy. And and I think, you know, we are, you know, as as professors at the college, we're expected to look and to develop and 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 so on. Um, you know, our own research program. So and and you sort of, you know, I was certainly a bit. I thought, how on earth do you do this? Um, you know, having come from where, you know, big programs where you have a lot of resource um, that you can access, but you still have to argue for that resource, but it's sort of pretty guaranteed, really, to where you're sort of an individual now making an application. It's a real nightmare, actually, writing these grant applications. And you sort of you know, have then great empathy for the other academics um, and researchers in the institution, many of whom have not had that privilege, actually, of working. You know, they've had to stay in that institution. They've had to graft away, you know, all the way through. So, I, you know, I think, you know, it's, I think for young people to understand that, you know, there are different pathways for these things. And some people suit, you know, a, um, you know, a very structured process in academia and and their research will then reflect that and i think there's room for other people who can bring sort of real life uh, skills and experience into an academic research environment um, and and provide a sort of different dynamic and i think the two together probably make the best the best research uh, programs that you can get so so i i sort of hung in there with i mean viral diseases so ppr Pestipity, ruminant virus, the plague, goat plague, uh, lots of names been used, but it's it's a very close relative of rinderpest. So I naturally picked that up, and and um, Jonathan Elliott, who's you know another mentor, um, you know head of uh, research at the college, he you know he was encouraging. He said, you know, I think you need to take this on, and um, I was happy to do that, and and we were able to raise funds. Um, and you know we've continued, and people like Bryony Jones, you know, is an absolute excellent researcher. Um, who I also had known in, in Africa, she had worked on the Rinderpest program. So she was there. And so we've sort of worked together now for quite a few years to, to build a bit of a program on this. And I think we've contributed very significantly. Um, and we now have wildlife and, and pestipity ruminant virus very much 
at the forefront of thinking um, in the current strategy on PPR elimination. So I, I feel pleased that you know I've used this academic opportunity. I, there, there are other people now working uh, within you know the the subject area who we've you know we've we've brought on, um, and um, you know we, we've you know had a good a good program uh, develop in PPR, and I hope it will continue, you know, in the college after I'm gone. Um, I also had the opportunity to. Is that something you think we, we're going to um, eradicate, or is that something that the, yeah. the, the focus is on? And yeah. and because you're you're not satisfied with just being eradicating one, one virus. <laughs> yeah. So PPR looks. I mean, the, the 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 interesting thing about PPR is that I I we were working on it actually at the same time as Rinderpest because they they are serologically indistinguishable. They're that close. And PPR is probably in an evolved form from Rinderpest. Maybe I mean it's you know there's evidence that it may be they're, they're very 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 close viruses, but the one you know uh, is found in the small ruminants and the other was found in the in the you know the larger ruminants. So um, uh, so it was sort of interesting dynamic and and of course with the two viruses circulating in Africa, there were some interesting questions and there were challenges you know so, so serological challenges which we were able to sort of sort out, but um, as in, in 2003, now this is, you know, so this is now after Rinderpest had finally been eradicated, it wasn't declared eradicated to, to 2010, but the evidence was that it probably had gone by, by 2003. And we had evidence now, we, you know, we were doing some residual work, you know, looking for antibodies for Rinderpest, and we found increasing evidence for, for PPR. And so it looked like PPR virus now was spreading from West Africa, where it always had been endemic, across to the eastern side and south. And so we were seeing now a spread of a new virus. And and at the time, I was arguing with colleagues and saying, could this be because we've eradicated a, a close relative, that we've changed the immune uh, systems, if you like, the natural immunity within populations? Uh, after we stopped vaccination, uh, but like smallpox and monkeypox, you know, you you stop vaccination and then the you know the, the humans or the animals become um, more susceptible to that type of virus. So so PPR seemed to to take if you like take that opportunity and and spread and it's you know it eventually reached the eastern seaboard of China in 2013. So I've sort of seen two pandemic cycles of two different viruses over my career, um, and you know unfortunately. We, you know, decisions weren't made in 2003 when it became clear that the virus was moving. That should have been done then, I think. Um, but but people were so focused, you see, on the one disease. And this is the problem, I think. We tend to not look holistically. We tend to focus too much on one thing and not see what's going on around us. Anyway, there is now a global program and we are contributing significantly. And the Royal Vet College is seen as an important uh, academic uh, you know, uh, driver for, you know, the research side of it uh, to, to help inform the OIE, to help inform the standards. We just, we have a current project looking at the serological standards and doing validation um, across multiple species because it affects, you know, I think from camels to yak, you know, to, to sheep and goats and to a range of wildlife. And, and many of the wildlife that are affected are endangered or you know or, or threatened species so so very important from a conservation perspective and that's always been a motivation for me rinderpest was the same it really hammered the wildlife and uh, you know the serengeti ecosystem had major uh, vegetation changes as a direct product of the virus killing so many ruminants the whole dynamic the numbers of predators everything was affected by this virus so 
uh, to me, uh, you know, as a vet, resolving this problem had a very strong conservation benefit. Uh, so that was always a motivation for me. Same for PPR. I mean, it's, you know, it really hammers and, you know, it links me now to the story of, of Saiga, um, Saiga antelope. So, I, you know, because I worked a lot with these ruminants in, in Africa, when I came back and had the opportunity to work with Saiga, these, these are ancient antelope that occupy Central Asia. And I was asked by the Convention of Migratory Species in, in 2012, after a die-off of about 10, 15,000 Saiga near the Russian border to, 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 to go and have a look because they were concerned. It's, it was one of the you know, important species for the convention and for um, you know, conservation in general. And you know, they were concerned that disease impacts might be significant in the recovery of these populations, which had been heavily poached actually at the end of the Soviet empire. So, so I, I, you know, that was, you know, we were asking about, did I still get out, you know, so I, of course, an opportunity like that, I wouldn't, uh, you know, not take. Uh, and so I did, you know, just did annual field trips from then on. Um, at the time of carving, these animals migrate across the whole of the steppe. I mean, we're talking massive area. They, you know, Kazakhstan, which is the sort of core population, it's 4,000 miles across. And, you know, so, and these animals cross pretty much the whole country. So, so we, you know, so I set up, you know, I, I, I went out, I looked at the situation, I said, you've got to set up a longer term monitoring program, you need to have a research activity, you need to strengthen the internal country capacity for this uh, in the veterinary field, um, and in the ecology, disease ecology field. And, you know, and so the Kazakhs were very good, they were, you know, pleased to do that. And so I had a, a bit of support, managed to get some money together. So, you know, again, you know, uh, making the right applications, getting support, you know, building a research team and community to, to work on that. So we did that with the University of Oxford, University of Bristol, Queen's Belfast, um, and some other institutions <coughs> um, uh, globally to, you know, to strengthen our ability to, to apply uh, research on a natural scale. So you, you, you're, you're doing natural experiments, really. You're looking at populations and what happens to them. And, that, and then we had this extraordinary die-off in 2015. So we had set up these teams and I, I would bring students from the college to do their master's project or, or their RP2 project. And I mean, golden opportunity for a young person, you know, to go into the middle of the steppe, beautiful place, you know, no people, uh, extreme conditions, minus 50 to plus 50 degrees, um, but, but, you know, but beautiful plants, um, you know, interesting mammals, you know, from, from things like the marmots to, you know, to phenomenal types of eagle, um, you know, bird populations, probably seven or eight species of lark in one place. I mean, just, just absolutely exquisite environments. So for students, very motivating. So I would, you know, I'd bring students every year and we'd, we'd monitor the mortality during the carving when animals congregated in, in groups of up to 60,000 animals. Um, and the, um, the, uh, um, uh, you know, 2015 experience was just absolutely extraordinary. So these animals were now recovering. There were about, uh, yeah, about 250,000 adults maybe. And the calves that year, they produced up to three calves. There were about 600,000 animals actually in, in this step. And so we had two teams working in, in a couple of the populations and um, they started dying. And within three weeks, um, 88 percent of this uh, species, uh, the Saiga tatarica, um, the, the Central Asian uh, subspecies, there are two subspecies, but this 
88% of the population died. And we observed it. We monitored it. We, we were able to take samples because I'd set this team up and, and, you know, we had protocols. And so we were able to collect the material. The country was obviously shocked. But we were able, I mean, again, because we had this community now, we were able to get the samples and get a diagnosis and, um, and then begin to look at why it was happening. And so we eventually published in science, uh, the science advances. So we got very, very high publication level and, you know, several other publications backing it up. Um, and we got an enormous amount of um, international interest, you know, from both the scientific community, but also from the general public about this because it was, you know, it was very dramatic. Um, and it was a disease called hemorrhagic septicemia. It's caused by a bacteria called Pasteurella multocida. Um, and um, it's associated actually in livestock. I mean, it, and it can affect humans too, but <clears throat> rarely. But, um, you know, it's, it's certainly be, was a, historically a very big problem for, for the domestic animals. Um, and then vaccines were produced, which has sort of tended to suppress the disease, but in a natural population like this. But the fact that what worried me after a whole career, you know, working and I'd worked on anthrax and a whole range of pretty nasty diseases and, you know, observed what they did in the field. Um, this, this was shocking because it killed everything. It killed males, females, old, young, and the calves all died. But the calves actually didn't die from the disease itself. Uh, it was only the adults. Uh, they died from starvation. But it, but it was a dramatic thing across. And we're talking a landscape. It was the size of Great Britain, basically, every animal in in that um, um, area died. I mean, it's, it's ridiculously um, horrific, you know. You know. And and um, so, you to, was that a, a vaccination program as as well? No, no. So in the end, so look, so so in the end, it was about understanding. So it was really about how to use research to, to gain understanding. So we began to look and we employed a multidisciplinary team. So we had ecologists and we had, you know, specialists in different areas, meteorologists. And so we looked at the environment, actually, because we said there had to, because of the uniformity, it was across, as I say, a massive landscape, 250,000 square miles. These groups of animals all died, and they were within three-week period. Not all on the same day, but uh, and we observed the death, and it was it was bizarre. I mean, it was it was like a, a synchrony, you know, across the population. So it's not an infectious disease in the conventional sense. In other words, there wasn't time for the bacteria to go from animal to animal to animal. They obviously had the bacteria in their system, and something triggered it uh, so that it invaded and caused a septicemia. So that was the sort of drama of it. And so we said there must be an environmental component to this. And so that's when we started looking at, um, uh, you know, climate uh, um, parameters. And we were able to show that it was, you know, the, the triggering of the outbreak was related to temperature and humidity. So we were able to statistically prove that. And we also looked at um, some historic die-offs. There had been some die-offs that were, were never really investigated because it's such a remote area. But people knew that animals had died. And, we were, and they knew the time period in which animals had died. And so we were able to compare over the years from 1981 right up into, you know, to the, to the die-off. Um, and we were able to then show that in each of those years, there was consistent um, changes, anomalous weather patterns. Um, and that seemed to be the trigger for this. But, but even so, um, it's not really biological sense, uh, you know, for 100% mortality. It just doesn't sort of happen in biology. And although we don't uh, we don't claim that climate change is causing this, 
climate change is definitely creating the conditions for this anomalous weather pattern that is happening. And there's no historic evidence of these die-offs, um, you know, like back in the Russian periods, you know, 100 years ago. So it seems to be a modern problem, and it seems to be, you know, very unnatural, really, and unbiological in the way it's happening. And so I think it's another example. It's another example um, of. Um, it's another example of, of what's happening on this planet, actually, that we're seeing landscape changes, landscape level of change. Um, and, and we all know about climate change um, and we know about land degradation um, and all that sort of thing. So it's, you know, it's, it's now something we have to think about. We have to think about these broader issues. And I think COVID-19 has just really brought it home to me that you know, we've had a series of these things happening. Now, if we look at the animal world, and if we look at the human world now, and there's a connection between them, um, and exactly what drives these things, they're complex. Sometimes there's a simple story, but from a re, you know from a research perspective, if you can really get into the detail of these things and provide evidence, then I think you know for decision making when it comes to what sort of livestock systems do we have? What food system should we have? Um, and you know, what sort of uh, approach should we have to the development, to to our interface with nature, to our how we manage our protected area systems, and how how we develop and exploit natural resources? I think, you know, so this is the one health story again coming back, um, and the saiga was just another angle to this. Uh, ironically. Um, the other subspecies of saiga in Mongolia in 2017 was infected by PPR. And we, we were actually a bit concerned in 2014, I published with colleagues in Kazakhstan, warning that PPR was moving through to China and that you know we, we needed to be aware of this and that saiga might be susceptible. Um, we couldn't prove that at the time, but of course the natural infection got into saiga and it killed 85% of that subspecies. So here we had two viruses. And I'm convinced with PPR that the spread of this virus is also linked, and, and the impact of the virus is also linked to the levels of land degradation and livestock um, management systems that have evolved. Because you know we have been increasing these livestock populations globally, particularly the small ruminants, and, and we're reaching tipping points. And so we're sort of sucking these viruses into these exploding or expanding uh, domestic animal populations and the consequences are dire not just for the livestock because they suffer the disease but also for all these other animals so we have a very disturbed planet i think and and uh, so i you know i feel proud that i've been able to at least show to the scientific community you know how important um seeing these diseases in context seeing them as part of an ecosystem and and that they're an indicator actually of an unhealthy ecosystems that you know we really are creating very unhealthy and, and risky environments and i think COVID 19 is is really you know the, the the underlying causes for this i think probably are food system related um the bats are, are clearly quite important but um, yep. do you think we're um, smart enough to to recognise sort of that and and sort of act on it, or do you think it's quite is, this is going to be an on an ongoing problem, not necessarily just COVID nineteen, but but I suppose as you as you were, you were saying with with everything else, you know whether whether climate's involved or um, uh, the dominance of of some of the domesticated species. Like, do you think we'll we will learn how to manage this, or or 
you know, are, are the right questions being asked in the um, from the, your ideas in the in the scientific community in the world? I suppose this is a, a global issue; yeah. it's not just a um, one institution sort of um, role. But do you think people are taking notice, or or is it just quite a, too complex to look at, or people burying their head in the well, sand? Well, look, I think the One Health movement, which has been adopted by WHO and OIE and FA and all these people, but you know, and, and a wider community, I think the One Health movement is saying, no, no, we've got to look at the planet you know, how it services life, um, what's been happening to, to, to all those basic systems, whether it be, you know, pollution effects, uh, climate change, you know, effects from CO2, whether it's about loss of forest, um, changes in water, you know, hydrologies. I mean, in other words, there's all sorts of things happening. And we know with our domestic, you know, and I, I've raised it within the college that, you know, 96% of mammals on this planet are now domestic. 4% are from an original natural population. We have transformed the planet. And now the consequences, I think, of this are that we've, you know, a lot of the checks and balances that existed between microbial organisms, their evolution has been a co-evolution with the diversity on the planet. So I think we're, we've generated now a real problem because we have these hosts which are genetically impoverished, if you like, and, and the, the, the viruses, the bacteria and so on, um, they, they will exploit that situation as they, as they, they don't think about it, they just do it. Um, you have a very big human population, but, but there are twice as many domestic animals, not including chickens, to humans. So they're a very, very big part of the story. And I think as vets, we have a responsibility. We have benefited from the expansion of domestic animal populations as vets. But I think we have a responsibility to understand, in a sense, the consequences of that and to try and influence people and, you know, through policy, through, you know, through, through public, I think, because I think vets are trusted um, and to say to people, well, look, don't eat so much meat because, you know, as, as an example, because really that's part of the problem. You know, we, we just really are, you know, we, we're consuming far too much animal protein. You know, we should be cutting back maybe 75%. If we did that, we would make an enormous amount of space for nature to recover because of the cropland that's involved and obviously the land that, that animals use. So, you know, I, I try and get this message across and I think it's the young people now, and I say to students coming through now, you have a job on, I think as vets, that you need to, in a sense, come in, to the profession, but with the idea of transforming our views on the relationship between man, domestic animals, and nature. And I think they could be pivotal. I think vets can be very pivotal because they are at that interface and they're trusted. So I think, you know, I give, you know, giving advice to students, you know, if you're going to do research, I mean, we need to understand what the limits are. We need to understand how far we can push these uh, systems. Um, you know, uh, I've got nothing against natural resource ex exploitation, but we need to maintain um, viable systems um, that are renewable systems. I mean, we understand that for climate change now, we just need to deal with, you know, uh, you know, getting away from, you know, from fossil fuels because they're not renewable. We need a renewable energy system and that will help to solve that problem. I think when it comes to uh, biodiversity, microbial uh, conflicts, if you like, uh, disease, again, we, we need to get restore these renewable, recyclable systems that maintain some sort of stability between microorganisms and, and their hosts. So, so it's that fundamental, I think, and it, we need good scientists and researchers to keep working on that. 
Look at the microbiome field. Look how that's transformed people's views around health and how microbial communities are important to health. You know, we're seeing these transitions, I think, from that sort of classical, you know, 20th century view that, you know, we have diseases, there's something that, that is, you know, that we are, haven't generated that we, we will just deal with, uh, with our technologies. You know, and I think of Bill Gates, you know, with his sort of famous speech a few years ago saying that, you know, he felt that it was the end of the age of infectious disease. And I, I'm wondering what he's thinking now. But, you know, whenever I heard that, I said, I think you're premature. You know, technology is great, but but actually we have to recognize, you know, that, you know, in the process of becoming a technological society, we have disturbed this planet so profoundly that, uh, you know, that we need to reflect and review on that and, and, and still use our technologies, but do it in a much more responsible way. Ah, there we go. So. It's, it's uh, pretty pretty impressive, uh, Richard. The, the, I was I was actually sort of thinking about um, uh, well, there's so many things with, with that, and and uh, um, and uh, and that will probably probably end the conversation. But I just wondered, um, with sort of uh, field research, has, has technology improved to make things sort of better um, or or more manageable or to manage things sort of differently compared to say in the eighties and nineties in, in East Africa. Do you, do you think there's a lot of advantages from technology or is it, or, or for the programs that um, you were involved with, is there still a lot of, you know, you need the boots on the ground, you need to actually have practical vaccines that you can vaccinate if that's required and, um, or, or are there quite a lot of technological advances in space more epidemiologically based in, in mind with um, the way we can look at diseases and, and more of these complex systems. Yeah, I think just I can you know wrap up pretty quickly on this. I, see, I, my feeling is that, of course, technology is great um, and genomics and all this sort of thing. It's wonderful that we have all this knowledge now. But um, but actually, you know, the way things work in the microbial world is they're far too quick. And therefore, you know, none of our technologies will ever be there quickly enough if we've disturbed things badly enough. So I think COVID's a good example. You know, none of our technologies really are quick enough to deal with this. You know, we're way behind the curve. And, you know, we will end up with a vaccine after the damage is done. Um, and then the virus will probably disappear and a new one will appear, you know, in, in a year or two. And we'll be back in the same situation. So I don't think our technology can outstrip the speed at which evolution influences these things. So I, I feel we have to really upstream on this and we have to say, okay, we're not going to be able to really deal with this from a response perspective. We just, you know, societies just can't cope with this sort of, you know, level of, of disruption and damage. We have to look at the source. We have to look at the underpinning factors and risk factors that drive these things. So that comes down to very fundamental things like food systems. We have to say, well, what sort of food system? Um, and a colleague of mine, Kate Jones, who's at uh, UCL, she used to be at ZSL, but she's uh, an ecologist who's done some really good work on on emergent diseases and, you know, talked about 75% of all human emergent diseases come from wildlife. But where else would they come from, frankly? But, but you know, she did, did a really good job to get across this message to people. Um, but, 
you know, it, it, you know, we have to upstream. We have to look at landscape. We have to look at the system itself that is generating these things and causing these disturbances. So it is fundamental. It comes down to political eco economy, I think, as to how we do things, how we manage our natural resources, how we exploit those resources. And I think there are limits. And I think we we are reaching a tipping point now, and we have to make a decision. It's an ex existential uh, argument: is do we really want to exist? Because if if we want to exist, we have to restore some sort of balance. And that means we can't exploit the planet to the levels I think that we've reached. So I do see it as a fundamental change. And I sense it in young people. They are extremely uncomfortable with the situation because they fear, um, you know, they fear what they see about the future. It's all sort of out of control. Um, and so I think there needs to be a slowing down and a reflection and society, you know, and I think after these big disasters, you know, it's a it's a good opportunity. It's a good time to, to for people to reflect and for governments to, you know, to think about well, what is it that we want? Uh, you know, and I think what we want is is actually not a mad world that is overconsumptive. I think I think we do want something that's more in balance. So um, that's that's where I am, and uh, you know, I, I enjoy my time at the college, and I will carry on until you know I'm no use. Thank you very, very much um, for your time. Just a couple of um, questions that are, that are completely sort of uh, off, off, uh, off topic, but uh, but something I've asked the people uh, along the way. Sort of, what what do you think you might uh, might be doing now if you weren't doing what you are doing, or is there anything else that you you are you are equally as passionate about? <laughs> well, look, I'm I'm so lucky, and I've really been very, very lucky. Um, and you know, I've been able to sort of pursue passion most of my life really um yeah, I, I didn't expect to do this necessarily or, or to succeed in any way but you know i feel pretty pleased that you know i mean you know, i've just dealt with these things as they've come and tried to follow pathways that i thought um you know would be beneficial to to, to more than myself i guess um you know that you know I, I do feel it's important that we give you know we should be giving as much as we can so I can't really think of anything else I could have done. Um, who knows? I mean, I, if one had life again, I guess, you know, again, you'd, you'd make your choices at various points in time. And, and you know, the environment I've lived in and, you know, the mentorship I've had and the opportunities, you know, they're not reproducible. Um, so I just feel very fortunate. Um, you know, I've been very, very lucky. And 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 finally, Richard, I did ask people as as well. Sort of um, mental health is obviously a, like a really um, big issue in the veterinary world, as it is in in every walk of life. But is there is there things that you have done or, or still do that uh, that sort of send to yourself, whether that be exercise or reading or or something trivial, I suppose. <laughs> Well, I, look, I think family is very important, and I, I've, again, I'm, you know, I've had a lovely family that's, you know, uh, been very supportive. My wife, in particular, my, you know, my children, my, my parents. I've had a lot of support, I guess, as an individual, and they've all also expressed themselves fully, and, and you know, so it's not a sacrifice, I guess. Um, they, they, you know, they've been very important in my life and my mental health, and and I, I just think working with wildlife and environment, you know, and getting some field work. I mean, all these things I think are really important to mental health. Uh, in a scientific community, that can be, can be pretty tough. It can be very critical and uh, and can be very uncomfortable at times. But you have to have a sense of humor, you know, and you've got to 
uh, take the rough with the smooth. I mean, you know, if 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 you do some bad science and you get criticised for it, then you've just got to get up and try again, you know. And and I think it's not to fear failure, not to fear being wrong. Um, and I think you know, over the years, you you know, you you learn that, and and it strengthens you because you actually you survive it, you know, and. Uh, um, you sometimes come up against political problems, and I've, I've mentioned some of those to you. And you know, I think if you have some courage, just if you believe in what you're doing, stick with it. And you know, the surprising thing is, you can be shouted at and told that you're wrong, and and so on. But in a sense, if you are confident and you have the evidence, you win in the end. Actually, you do get through, and and you have to deal with that rough patch. But uh, you come out of it, and then people say, "Oh, well, that's good. You know, you did well." And yeah, so so I think is don't don't fear the future. You know, just just try and equip yourself and have the right skill sets, and 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 certainly have the right support. You know, people-wise, mentorship, and and you know, don't isolate yourself. Um, you know, and and you won't like everybody. They won't. Not everybody's going to like you. And and you know, you just accept the world is like that. Um, but don't get upset about it. Don't you know? Don't lose your mental well-being and health. Well, thank you again, Richard. I hope um, you you I don't know whether enjoy is the right thing, but I hope you enjoyed this uh, this conversation. It's been <laughs> absolutely fascinating and um, and and really like inspirational because I think to you know involve yourself in something that's that's had a you know been one of the two viruses that have been eradicated in the in the world is um is is a pretty impressive. Uh, uh, feet and to be on the on the ground when that um, when that happened and also the, the conviction to sort of say when you think um, it still exists that's uh, that's again you know um, uh, amazing to amazing to hear so so thank you very much indeed pleasure we'll wrap it up there I think uh, you'd all agree that's pretty fantastic to be able to speak to Professor Cock who is one of you know one of the few people to. Uh, or the last person to identify rinderpest in a in a wild sort of population, as far as we know, um, and one of uh, a very few select people who've been involved in eradicating a, a virus. So, um, so very impressive, very humbling to to listen to um, to him. So, thank you again, Professor Cock, and thank you for listening. So many thanks um, again for your time. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review, that would be great on, on wherever you get your podcasts um, from. So don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any other friends. We're, we're open to uh, new listeners all the time. We'll play some show notes on the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC Research Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.